Kuzu Zambo, you are listening to Bhutan Dialogues, a platform to discuss ideas and issues in development. Bhutan Dialogues is a joint initiative of the Lothian Foundation and the United Nations in Bhutan, held every second Thursday of the month in Thimpo. I'm Karma Punso, and my guest for this session is Dr. Yoshiro Ishihara, the resident representative of the World Bank in Bhutan. We will discuss comparative development stories. This dialogue has three sections. Mr. Gerald Daly, the resident coordinator of the United Nations in Bhutan, will introduce the session, followed by my conversation with a guest. The session ends with a Q&A with a live audience. Good afternoon, colleagues. On behalf of all the UN staff at the UN House, I wish to welcome you to your UN House. This is the 10th session of Bhutan Dialogues. How can Bhutan stand on its own feet? How can we make a good living? What can Bhutan provide that the world wants? How can Bhutan compete on equal terms? How do we overcome our great dependence on imports? His Majesty Jigmi Geser Nyangil Ongchuk. Our topic today is comparative development stories. In development, we broadly, especially here in Bhutan, have two lenses by which we look at development. We have the Sustainable Development Goals, which broadly can be broken down into the five Ps. And what do those P's stand for? Well, not necessarily in order of priority, depending on the country. But generally speaking, we say planet, we say peace, we say partnership, people, of course, and prosperity. And what's very interesting about the language around prosperity is prosperity occurs in harmony with nature. Now the other great lens by which we might wish to engage in development is gross national happiness, especially here in Bhutan. And we all know the four pillars, governance, culture, environment, and socio-economic development. Governance, culture, environment, and socio-economic development. And then the interesting language around socio-economic development is a thriving GNH economy must value social and economic contributions of households and families, free time and leisure, given the roles of these factors in happiness. And because gross national happiness is enshrined in the Constitution, we can imagine that this has a higher priority. Development partners are mindful of these key elements for achieving good development. And today's Bhutan Dialogue will primarily focus on prosperity and socio-economic elements of development. There are many economic prosperity questions one could ask. But here are some of the ones that particularly interest me. Firstly, 
I hope we get a better understanding of the goods and services tax and the extent to which the Ministry of Finance has less resources to work with over the coming years. Second, last year we ran a trade deficit of 30 billion nutro, slightly down from the previous year, which means we imported nutro 50 billion more than we exported. Is this a concern? <coughs> Third, Bhutan is about to graduate from being one of the world's least developed countries. This is a major milestone for the people of Bhutan and for the development partners. Over the next five years, based on international experience, what are the wise decisions and actions that are recommended regarding the economy so as to be ready for LDC graduation? The speakers, Yoshiro Ishimohara. His, uh, his academic background um, is a BA in politics and planning from the University of Tsukuba, a master's in development studies from the School of Oriental and African Studies, and a doctorate of philosophy in international development economics from the Nagoya University. He has undertaken flagship analytical works for four countries, including Indonesia, Afghanistan, Rwanda, and here in Bhutan, where he is the resident representative since July of 2016. He also has worked with the World Bank in the Aid Effectiveness Unit in Washington, where he undertook and led the flagship report on the World Bank and Aid Effectiveness. Finally, in terms of the CV, I would draw attention to the fact that he worked with the Japanese Embassy in Indonesia on economic affairs. With respect to our, um, uh, our very fortunate colleague, uh, Karmel Punso, I would draw attention to the fact that he is president of the Loden Foundation. But I also wish every time to look at something unique, and probably many of you are aware of his regular article in the Kunso. I wish to draw attention to his article on the Shedra Monastic College. And I wish to draw some type of a connection between the Shedra and what we do here at Bhutan Dialogues. I will admit that I've been a little bit ambitious, but <laughs> please allow me. So, the Shedra is the monastic college in the Himalayan Buddhist system, where they focus on analysis, debates, and writing. We are fortunate, of course, that we do not ask anybody here to undertake any writing. But what we do invite you to do is to engage in analysis and debate. In the article in the Council which he wrote, he drew attention to the fact that there is nothing an heir to the Buddha would not learn, for there is nothing which he or she cannot turn into an act of merit. And given the fact that it is possible that our analysis and debate here can be seen as an opportunity to grow a merit, then I would say that there is some logic in saying that what we do in Bhutan Dialogues has some connection 
with the Shetra tradition. And after the dialogue, we have a networking opportunity, where today we will have Namkai Norbu, who is the chief editor of Business Bhutan, and he will be helping us to think through how to write a good newspaper article for those of you who are interested in that very practical how-to. Last point today. Sarin Chuki, Sarin, could you put your hands in the air? And um, Punso Namge, Punso? These are two colleagues who very practically do the work of organizing today. They are the key organizers of Bhutan Dialogues. If you wish to suggest an add-on session at a future Bhutan Dialogues, please reach out to them. In addition, I have circulated a document which is titled Better Conversations, a Starter Guide. And that's the philosophy which inspires uh, Dr. Carmafonso and myself in organizing Bhutan Dialogues. And people are invited at the very end after you've read this at some point in time, you're invited to ask yourself three questions. The first question, can you identify something you've learned from someone else during today's Bhutan Dialogues? Can you think of something that helps you to think about something that you weren't thinking about before? And finally, did I introduce myself to a stranger today and thus extend my social network? Those are three questions that you are invited to ask of yourself. With that, I want to say Kadan Shela, and I hand over to Dr. Karma and Yoshiro. So Yoshiro, welcome to Bhutan Dialogues. Uh, Bhutan Dialogues is a forum um, which we are promoting with the hope of uh, developing a space for civil conversations, as uh, Jerry pointed out, an exercise to have uh, mindful listening and uh, right speech, to stretch our thoughts, to ex extend our uh, boundaries of thinking, and uh, more specifically to refine our understanding uh, and practice of development and human progress. And it's uh, always a, an honor for us to have eminent speakers like you come here and share your wisdom and insights, and particularly you today, because you both officially and personally um, epitomize development practice. And, uh, you've personally, uh, I've just discovered, done a master's in development studies at uh, SOAS, a university or the institute that I am myself part of. You've done a PhD in um, economics, and um, then you, at the moment, work for World Bank, which is an institute that claims to support development, um, that claims to have published about 200,000 documents on increasing our understanding of development. So uh, there couldn't be a better profile to fit the, the theme of the dialogue today. But before we delve into the issues of World Bank and development, I want to ask you a more personal question. 
So I and the audience here would know you better. What brought you to who you are today? You come from Japan, uh, you've uh, done a lot of studies, worked in many countries, and here you are today in Bhutan, in a small economy, after working in so many big economies. So what made you who you are? Can you share very briefly? Okay. Thank you very much, Kama. And first of all, thank you very much. Um, first of all, and I'd like to thank uh, Jerry, of course, and for UN and Karma and the audience coming here. And this is the 10th anniversary of uh, Bhutan Dialogue. And I treat it as a compliment and the anniversary session for me. <laughs> and uh, Jerry already explained about and my professional career at the World Bank and before the World Bank. So with that, I'd like to share a little more personal touch and where I came from. Of course, like other people, I didn't program my life from the beginning. I happened to be here in Bhutan at the age of 51, but I didn't program it. And when I was very small, like other kids, and I want to be a professional baseball player in Japan. That, that was my dream when I was six, seven years old. And when I get really a little bit matured at the junior high school age, I was thinking about my future career, and I, I was thinking about to continue something. And I was very much interested in so-called safety engineering. For example, how to build a safe elevator and escalator. So this is my original dream of my life. And then I was very much interested in so-called urban planning and urban designing. Because like other people, and, uh, I, I want to build my own city in the middle of somewhere. I was thinking of the Australia and the Airslog and create my own town. That, that's my dream. So that's why uh, I was measuring in uh, urban planning at the university level. And then I changed my mind a little bit because in order to realize my dream, I need to understand finance and other issues. And I worked for, as a commercial banker for 10 years, especially on the project finance area. And until that time, and I didn't question my dream. I thought at that time, Japan had a lifetime employment system. So I didn't question myself. The next 30 years, I would work, work for the same company and retire and happy life. This is my dream plan at the age of 25. But as you might know, that Japan had a financial crisis in 1998. The bank I was working for went bankrupt in practice. And I was learning my master's at London and Indonesian studies. And I, I didn't believe in anything, because I thought my life is very stable, nothing would happen. And then I decided to go to Indonesia, because no one knows what would happen next. And I studied about Indonesia at the master's. Let's go to Indonesia. That's uh, the starting point of my journey as a development specialist. And after Indonesia, and you may know that Indonesia also had a crisis in 1998-1999. And in front of my apartment, and there is a military tank running around. There is a demonstration every day, and it was really dangerous. And there was a security attack and a terrorist attack almost every year. And you may remember that back to 2002, and there was a large um, security attack in Bali, Indonesia. And more than 100 people died. And, but that was the end of my, my, uh, my stay in Indonesia. It became very safe. And people enjoy it, and I enjoy it. And actually, life is much better than life in Japan. And I was questioning myself, and whether I can stay for Indonesia, stay in Indonesia forever, and finding an Indonesian girlfriend there, and have a happy life. And uh, I was questioning, really questioning myself. But I decided not to do that, and I was into uh, development at that stage. And I have a good life in Indonesia, but let's explore more. So at that point, I decided to go to Afghanistan. It's a bit extreme change from Indonesia to Afghanistan. I called my parents and I said, and uh, I de decided to go to Afghanistan. Are you okay with that? And they said, okay. <laughs> oh, and I was very surprised. But the fact was they didn't know Afghanistan at all. And, uh, <laughs> that, 
following day, they called me, are you sure? And is, is there something wrong with me? And it's okay, And but uh, please be safe. I was safe, but just to share, and it was not really safe. And then there was a couple of security incidents around me and around us. And the World Bank itself, there was a security attack right behind our office. And I missed and we missed by five minutes. And if I had been there, so I would have been affected. Um, it's sad, but uh, I, I lost a couple of my friends there and because of security attack. But on a personal note, and uh, it's, I still must say it's a good experience for me to understand more on development. It's a big shift from Indonesia to Afghanistan, but this is kind of like a reality check. And this is, I would say, the very first part of my journey as a development specialist. And after that, I moved around different countries, and always my thinking is how best I can contribute. Because in every country, be Indonesia, Afghanistan, Rwanda, and Bhutan, and I'm not a local person. And people living there and here, they know much better than I do. And at that situation, what I do is to bring some different perspective and different experience from other countries and trying to apply. And from that point, and uh, I went to Rwanda because I believe that uh, a lot of things are going on development in Africa. And Rwanda and Bhutan, and it's quite similar, and both are developed countries, both are landlocked country. And there, and Rwanda is called African Miracle. And in Bhutan, among ourselves, something we call South Asian Miracle. And I try to contribute to Bhutan from my own experience in Rwanda. So this is how I come here. No, thank you. What a fascinating journey. So you have been to many countries uh, and many cultures. Uh, do you find very distinctive differences in development approach as well as a result of cultural differences? Are there very different development thinking and practices in these different countries? I think so. And because uh, there are no same country in the world. Each country is unique. So this is how I put um, at the beginning. But uh, as you're um, putting the culture aspect, um, probably I'd like to touch on the concept of time. Because each country has a different concept of time. And starting from Indonesia, I keep saying using the same word, and jam kalet. And for those who know Indonesia, jam means uh, time, and kalet means rubber. And this is rubber time. They can expand and they can shrink, and people have different ideas. And whenever I go to a meeting, I prepare myself. I bring this kind of document all with me. Because in general, meetings start, if I'm lucky, meetings start late by 30 minutes. In general situation, meetings start late by one hour. If I'm unlucky, then meetings start two hours late. Of course, then they have a lot of excuse, and traffic jam is really bad. Indonesia. It's probably 100 times worse than here. And from the World Bank office to the Ministry of Finance, it's 10 kilometers. Sometimes it takes me two, it took me two hours from the office to the Ministry of Finance. But people are okay, and I was trying to be okay, but I was not. <laughs> I'm Japanese, and I can be very punctual. But I was trying to be okay, and I, I think I managed very well. But this is how they work, and then this concept of German current. Sometimes they are very hurry in where they shouldn't be hurry, and the opposite is happening. And also in Afghanistan, um, they are pretty interesting country, and they are Muslim country and Islamic country. And whenever I ask, when can I get this document? When can I get this data? The first answer is inshallah. <laughs> and I was asking, what do you mean by inshallah? And their answer is, 
Afghanistan concept of inshallah is better than Middle Eastern inshallah. Mm -hmm. And I was asking, what, what does it really mm -hmm. mean? Mm -hmm. They said, in Middle Eastern concept, people live 100% to the God. Probably there's some joke inside that, mm -hmm. and don't take it seriously. Mm -hmm. But for Afghanistan concept, they live to the God 70%. Mm -hmm. They act 30% among mm -hmm. themselves. Mm -hmm. This is their concept. Mm -hmm. And I learned a lot. Mm -hmm. And Rwanda is very opposite. And for those and who may not know Rwanda very well, they had a tragic event in early 1990s, and there was genocide, mm -hmm. and a couple of million people died, and they were killing each other, literally. But from that point, and Rwanda developed very well. But in order to unite a country as a single country, they need to have a development. Mm -hmm. Because one social system and economic system doesn't work, so people tend to focus on something different. And my profession is economist, and when I'm talking to about the economic issue and asking when do you want to have this reform, their answer, they are not joking, but they say, I wanted to have it yesterday, I wanted to have it last week, a year. They are that in a hurry. Mm -hmm. And like we are chasing Rwandan people because we are late in, um, according to their standard. Mm -hmm. So people mm -hmm. have different concepts about time. Mm -hmm. And coming back to Bhutan, mm -hmm. So you should, so I, should I stop something? <laughs> <laughs> well, you probably find the equivalent of Jam uh, Kale and uh, Inshallah here it's as well. A, it's, a, it's a mixture of everything, yeah. I must say, <laughs> in a diplomatic way. Yeah. But when you face such uh, cultural situations where people are very laid back with regard to time use, how would you manage uh, delivering your targets? As a World Bank professional, you have deadlines, you have targets. Do you have different sort of pace adopted for different cultures? Um, I'm trying to do that, mm. but I'm just an ordinary person that I cannot handle that. Mm. But you know Japanese culture, the very punctual, mm. and you may have heard the news that, for example, Bill 20 departed the station 20, 20 seconds earlier, and it became a big scandal. Mm. And in one municipality, and one who start eating lunch two minutes earlier than he was supposed to be, and all the municipal leaders and others, they are in front of the media and trying to approach us like this. And I, I came to that culture. And I'm trying to mix up a different culture with my culture in a good way. But what I'm trying to do is uh, to manage expectations from both sides. Because Bhutan people and from Bhutan side, they have certain expectations. And if I say, okay, I need to do this and that to a certain period, like they are stepping back. Mm. Well, what, what kind of thing this guy is talking about, this mm. kind of reaction. Mm. And if I explain to our internal colleague, and they are really in hurry, some of them very late, but mostly in hurry. Mm. But if I say, for example, according to our counterparts, so they will finish this and that by this time, mm. and there are huge difference. Mm. And if, for example, they directly talk on that issue, I, I don't think they can um, manage um, themselves each other. So part of my job as a resident in the World Bank is expect expectation management in both sides and trying to understand better on what our counterpart in Bhutan really means in terms of management and also want to understand and our people whether this is hard deadline or hard procedures and trying to navigate so between, uh, between these two. Sometimes I play uh, most part and the blood cop role because both both sides criticize me, mm. but I'm trying to be a good cop all the time. Mm. Uh, but uh, issues like time is uh, lighter, it's easier to deal with than some other cultural aspects. For instance, the World Bank has this aim of uh, elevating poverty, of uh, sharing prosperity as its main goal. 
But then you may go to a society, a culture where there is serious gender injustice, social inequity. You cannot sort of compromise with these cultures, can you? I mean, how do you keep up your principles and objectives and at the same time um, try to integrate and be respectful to the host cultural practices? Like, say, the, in the Middle East, uh, I hope no one gets offended, but gender inequality is a serious issue. Mm -hmm. Do you accommodate that kind of gender inequality into World Bank practices? Mm -hmm. How do you go about negotiating with such cultural challenges? Probably this is in a diplomatic way, and uh, I would say we are trying our best. And this is in a diplomatic saying. But in reality, there's something we can do, and there's some other things that we cannot do. And the other things that it takes a lot of time, and uh, we need to face the reality. And that's why um, I really like to stay in a country, and based in country office, in order to understand the cultural context and other context. And I am not criticizing other part of the World Bank, but if some people fly, fly in and from headquarters to certain countries, for a week or two weeks. Mm. I, I don't think this is an appropriate way to handle especially complicated subjects and mm. such as social development and the gender mm. issues. Mm. And one part of the weakness that the World Bank and the other development partners mm. have is, and we naturally assume once we establish system, so be the, be the gender equity policy, be the social development policy, mm. and we somehow assume that after that it's all piloting and we can address everything by having a system is right. Mm. But I, I don't think this is a tool. And uh, the reality is after having the system and uh, there are a lot of challenges and because they are embedded in the culture and tradition back to 400 or 500 years. Mm. And we need to take this into account while pushing the World Bank agenda. But that's exactly uh, the, the difficult um, sort of challenge you face, isn't it? That you would have some cultural power structures which are built in place for centuries and which will reinforce this social inequity. Um, but then, if World Bank truly comes in as a social actor to change that social inequitable situation, um, it should challenge the power structures. But, or is it really, as some of the critics were uh, arguing, that World Bank is more of a commercial entity with vested interest to promote sort of multinational corporations more than the, the actual sort of uh, um, um, uh, people in the developing countries. Um, so I, I want to go mm. this extreme way, either okay. commercial or purely idealistic mm. um, way of thinking. And there was a middle way, mm. and especially on um, speaking about the social development related environment, these issues, and across all countries we have minimum standards. Mm. And for example, we have zero tolerance of corruption. Mm. That's the minimum standard we have. But beyond that, how to apply and how to implement, and depending on country context. Because even if, for example, I say, so you need to distance that, unless there's an ownership from the country and the client, and nothing is happening. And from that point, and we, we made a major shift from the, in, in the World Bank. And in the past, and our strategy was called uh, country assistance strategy. Like we, from the top, assisting the country. Mm. This is what we call it in the mm. past. Mm. But we changed our name to the country partnership strategy. Mm. And this means that we are partnering with the client countries and based on and the country's aspiration on development and how we can best to realize. Mm. And if we don't agree on the overall document or overall direction, and we can step back. Mm. And there are many, many examples in the world. And we are not shy okay. to step back. Um, for the benefit of the young audience here, can you share very briefly about what World Bank does uh, in the world generally and also the programs you have here in Bhutan? 
Yes. Um, before going to that, I, I'd like to ask, how many of you know the World Bank? Have you heard anything about the World Bank? Yes. <laughs> Some voices of yes, but there are almost no hands up. One, two, three, yes. So let, let me start from the beginning of the World Bank. Um, World Bank is a, is a special agency under the UN system. Let, let me put it this way. And this is part of the international organization. And our goal across the world is we, we call it twin goals. And one is um, eradicating extreme poverty. And when we say uh, extreme poverty, um, this is a person and who, have, uh, who earns less than $1.9 or $2 a day. This is what we call um, extreme poverty. And we are trying to educate or extreme poverty. And also, the second objective we call shared prosperity. And this means that the income growth rate of the bottom 40% of the, the group is higher than the upper 60% of the group. By doing that, we are trying to achieve um, development with some equity. And this is a global target that we have. And in Bhutan, and we have long-term relationship um, with, with Bhutan, and we established a relationship back to 1981, and more than 30 years ago. And uh, at the first uh, two decades or three decades, and we are focusing on health and education. Because 30 years ago, the main needs from the Bhutan is how to establish good health and education system. And we provided grant support, and we supported uh, Bhutan to construct some buildings and school building. This is how we started our engagement in Bhutan. But unlike UN, and we have different income classification, and the Bhutan graduated from low-income country status in 2008. And we have different methods of um, categorizing income status. But for us, Bhutan graduated from low-income country status in 2008. And this means that we were not able to provide grant financing to Bhutan. And we switched from grant to loan. And this is a major shift in our engagement, because in Bhutan, the government doesn't borrow for social development such as health and education. And the government has asked us to switch our focus from health education into infrastructure such as agriculture and urban development. So currently, and we have some projects and focusing on urban development and agriculture project. But a bigger part of our engagement is what we call it uh, policy reform loans. Because the Bhutan requires a lot of policy reforms in the area of fiscal management and the fossils and the food on the fiscal, this is how government get revenues and how government spend money. This is what we call fiscal, fiscal management. And also how to create environment for in, uh, private sector development. Because Bhutan has developed in the last three decades, mainly driven by the state. And the environment for private sector is not really good. And we think and there are a lot of reform requires. And by pushing, not really pushing, by aligning reform process to Bhutan, and we provide financial resources mm -hmm. to the government of Bhutan. Mm -hmm. So this is how we engage mm -hmm. at this stage. So uh, World Bank uh, at large, um, if you look at the global scenario today, there is a rise or at least a sporadic uh, spread of uh, economic protectionism with uh, Trump uh, coming up with trade tariffs, with uh, Brexit, and even Modi's GST. Then on the other hand, if you look at China, China has come up with uh, the new development bank. They're giving a lot of money for infrastructure development. So is World Bank's role being undermined by that, by these developments? Are you as relevant to the world today as you were in the past? So because of our mandate, in theory, mm -hmm. so we are not engaged in politics. 
So this, this is our starting point. Once we started engaging in politics, so our mandate and our activity is completely different. And so this is a starting point. But uh, the question is very relevant under the current global situation, especially in China, US, and Russia, and many, many countries going to, to a different direction. But we look at this situation from purely economic point of view or social economic, social development point of view, and how this pro protection type approach would affect development of each country and also globally. Mm. And the answer is very clear. Mm. This is negative. Just put in a context, and South Asia is the least integrated region in the world, and East Asia is opposite, mm. and East Asia is the most integrated region across different countries. And just focusing on the economic benefit, mm. and the results are very different. And we have made um, many studies for South Asia, how economic integration, how infrastructure development would contribute to regional integration, mm. and how much money value each country would get. And this is the only but the powerful weapon we have mm. to talk to our counterpart in different countries. Mm. But we don't use we don't use any other ways. Mm. Mm. Uh, I'm going to bring up uh, something I read recently. Um, this is a news in the Guardian uh, about. Uh, four days ago or so, uh, reporting that uh, a chimpanzee protected area in Africa, which was actually sponsored by World Bank, was good facing threats of a dam that was also sponsored, or not sponsored, a dam that was built after the World Bank did the environment assessment. So the criticism by that journalist was that the World Bank has sort of become so big that it's, uh, it's taking away by one hand what was given by the other. Are you such a huge organization that's becoming too big and dysfunctional? Um, like so the UN mm -hmm. in some ways? Yes, um, <laughs> maybe I should speak about the UN <laughs> in front of everyone. But for the World Bank, yes, and the World Bank is a, is a big institution mm. and in terms of development. I, I don't deny it, and there's some advantage of doing that. Mm. But the downside is sometimes um, it takes such a long time mm. to make addition among ourselves. Mm. And especially, I, I don't know the specific example of which country and how it happened. This happens. was a chimpanzee um, protected area in uh, Guinea, in mm -hmm. Africa. Okay, but uh, I, I can imagine, because uh, uh, we are, I, in any case, so I, I'm not saying the World Bank is a perfect mm. organization. Mm. We are still developing and evolving ourselves, and especially in the area of the environment and social management. Mm. Because in the past, and uh, we could do some exports analysis on the impact of the, and for example, impact of dam construction. But these days it's very different, and we are all required to uh, do um, um, prior assessment and prior um, actions in order to prevent this, uh, this kind of things from happening. And it's really you know, sad to hear the kind of um, example mm. and chimpanzees were negatively <coughs> affected by the construction on that. Mm. But I'm sure, and of course, uh, our new policy and the guidance, and these days, and we are very serious about it. Sometimes I feel and we put um, too much resources on that. Mm. Because once there is an incident, and not only country management that I have, the organizing unit or um, respective um, sector colleagues, but also our senior management, we all engage in that person how to use, how to, um, uh, how to rescue, uh, how to uh, change the situation. Um, the other thing I read uh, uh, on World Bank's website is there is a move from being a lending agency for development programs to become a broker in 
private capital investment. So we had the IFC here investing in uh, private sector here. And there were criticisms saying that this is another way of World Bank taking over and exploiting the local resources by having multinationals come into the poor countries. How justified is such criticism? No, that, that's very interesting. And as you rightly mentioned, so these days we are trying to leverage um, private capitals rather than us provide everything. Mm. Because the development landscape is very different from 20, 30 years ago. Mm. And when I started for development, say, 20 years ago, and UN, World Bank, ADB, and the other development agencies, and they have significant share mm. and within the, and the private country's budget. Mm. And whether we provide some amount of financial resources or not, so it determines and how they spend money for their development. And we have that uh, like financing power in the past. But looking at now, and it's very different, there are many, many ways to finance it. And for example, my previous country in Indonesia, while I was there, World Bank was very influential in terms of the amount of the money we provided. But these days, the Indonesian program is, say, one billion US dollar a year. Mm. and which is about uh, 50% of the mm. GDP in, in Bhutan. Mm. But this is just a small amount of money, mm. and we can't influence a lot, just providing money. Mm. Mm. And with that, and uh, just to um, respond to changing development landscape, mm. and we are thinking about how to leverage private capitals because mm. they have bigger share. Mm. But uh, by bigger share, it is not aut automatically mobilized. Mm. And for example, if private sector people are questioning about the policy direction, mm. such as gender and social development, and even if they are profit-making organization, they would be reluctant to put money into that. Mm. And also, if there's some sort of risk, mm. guarantee risk and others, probably they may be away from putting money. Mm. And in that situation, we put some seed money mm. into the system, and so that private sector can people be more comfortable to provide money. Mm. And this is how we leverage rather than yeah. kicking up some other, sec other sectors and prayers from the mm. system. Yeah. Now, uh, being involved in um, social enterprise development uh, myself here in a very modest capacity, um, I've learned about uh, World Bank or IFC's uh, investment of $29 million into BNB, Bhutan National Bank. How has that really helped the private sector directly? Because the lending rates, the interest rates remain the same from BNB. The private sector doesn't get a sort of a preferential concessional rate when they start their business. So I'm, I'm wondering whether World Bank benefits from the equity, the dividends that you get from BNB's shares. How does it work in helping the private sector? So in, in terms of our engagement for private sector development in general, mm. and uh, we we conduct this couple of analytical work mm. and what the key binding constraint for private sector development. And for example, and we conduct so-called investment climate assessment back mm. to September last year. And there are three binding constraints and from our research and analysis. And the first one is access to finance. Mm. The second one is lack of skilled labor. And the third one is access to market. So these are three binding constraints. Mm. And among these top three, access to finance, is the most binding constraint. And when we are speaking about access to finance, and there are many aspects, and for example, interest rate, uh, yes, the lower the better, 
But for example, if because of the low interest rate, if the whole financial system goes wrong, so the impact goes to the whole country. Now I'm thinking about my own experience as a commercial banker in Japan. This is what happened in Japan and other countries. So maintaining uh, stability and the system, financial sector system is the foundation and quite important. And also access means if the private sector can provide money to a required sector. And from the commercial uh, banker point of view, I fully understand the easiest way, especially in the current situation in Bhutan, the easiest way to lend money is, for example, automobile finance and construction finance. Because the assumption is if something goes wrong, the commercial bankers, they take automobile and building as a collateral and sell it and recover. And personally, I, I don't think it's happening because from, from my own experience, we failed. But under that situation, for example, if private sector, manufacturing, other, if they need money, and how to spend money and how to redirect money is more important. And as far as I understand, that's where IFC and the World Bank is working on, trying to improve the capacity of a commercial bank, how they can make the best judgment and the risk analysis and provide the financial finances to the need required sector. Yeah, thank you. Now, uh, financial constraints are a major challenge for um, the entrepreneurs here. Since, uh, now, moving on from World Bank to you personally as uh, an expert uh, development economist, in one of your recent publications, you said uh, Bhutan's hydro sector clouds macroeconomic prospects. Is it just clouding, or is there a risk that we'll get washed away as well? <laughs> that uh, I mean, I personally, when I look at the hydro sector, which was really a, a big dream 10 years ago for me, I was thinking Bhutan is going to have this amazing demographic situation where there'll be huge human capital will work and the hydro revenue that will come in, and I will have a cushy retirement. But then 10 years down the line, the prospects seem very, very dim. Uh, glaciers are melting. India is producing its own uh, hydro, oh, not hydro, sorry, power. So is this hydro uh, sector scenario, the, the sort of challenges that we face, going to merely cloud or even wash away our sort of macroeconomic dreams? Uh, you are quite diplomatic and euphemistic even perhaps in your article, I don't know, but what you as a person, leaving behind the World Bank's official hat, what, as an economist, do you think is Bhutan's uh, future? Okay, thank you very much. Um, as soon as uh, Jerry stopped videotaping, and I can be very honest and think, I want now. <laughs> but when I say crowd, this is really crowd, so not really washing away. Um, probably this is uh, part of the weakness of my messaging about the hydropower sector. Mm. By any means, I don't mean how the hydropower sector is a drug in the economy or the whole of the country. Mm. It's a treasure and opportunity that Bhutan has. It's a very unique opportunity that Bhutan has. Mm. Just uh, giving an example between Bhutan and Rwanda, the size of the country is almost the same, exactly the same. The population-wise, they have 11 million, and Bhutan has 750, different. But both are growing high. But thinking about this energy, because energy is a key component of economic development, in Rwanda, their total generation capacity is 100 megawatt. And Bhutan has 1,600 megawatt. And when we are talking about hydropower sector, I usually call it this is a luxurious problem, because no other country in the world has this opportunity other than Bhutan. 
The issue is how to manage hydropower sector well for development, not only economic development, but also economic development in general. The reason I put the title clouds, you know, actually I had the same question from internal colleagues, why, why do you put this cloud? Because considering the size of the economy, it's a two billion user, this is one of the smallest economy in the world. And the hydropower sector, one mega hydropower sector, say Puna 1 or Puna 2, its whole construction cost is say 1.5 billion or 2 billion US dollar. It's huge compared to the size of the economy. And any small up and down of the hydropower sector affects the whole economy. And the reason I mentioned the crowd is because of the delay in Puna 1 and Puna 2. So I'd like to put the, what kind of impact it would have on the economy with the growth, revenues, exports, and their huge impact. So the overall message probably I should have changed is that how to manage hydropower sector. And this applies to the future, because now the completion of the mandate is in, in our site, and the Puna 1 and the Puna 2 is coming in 22 or 23. And hopefully. Hopefully, <laughs> I'm still hopeful. <laughs> and under that situation, how best we can use the hydropower, not only construction, but for generations. And so far, Bhutan has used the hydropower really very well, as far as I understand. But the Bhutan is now a different stage of development, and how to manage hydropower is completely different in the future. Well, no, it's really reassuring for uh, ordinary people like me to have an economist say it's not as dark and dim as it seems, or some people make it seem. We have people uh, here in Bhutan who are very critical and who actually want even some of the hydropower projects to be stopped and halted instead of putting in more money into it. You also have a similar positive take on our debt situation. Now, Gerard mentioned the trade deficit, 30 billion last year. Uh, we have enormous debt of 163 billion or so. But you say in one of your articles that our debt is still manageable. Um, so I'm reassured, but can you clarify a little bit, uh, a bit more on why I should be reassured by this? Because uh, a lot of people understand debt as a bad thing. Mm. I, I don't think this is the case. Of course, I don't want to borrow. Mm. If I can manage by myself, it is better. But the issue is how to use the money mm. and how to use financing resources out of, out of debt. Mm. And for example, if I have uh, 100 newton in my pocket, mm. I need 900 more and spend more for my productive purpose, mm. for my education and others, it's not easy to quantify, but my rate of return is much higher than that. Mm. Of course, I'll be able to pay back mm. debt from my own pocket, mm. and rate of return is positive for me. Mm. And also, financial institutions, they are positive. Mm. So this is the very first start point of debt. Mm. But if debt is not used mm. as planned, if there's some, something unusual happens, mm. and we will not be able to pay back debt, and this is a different situation. Mm. And in case of Bhutan, and people usually look at the headline number, the external debt as a share of GDP, share of economy, is 110%. Mm. This is one of the highest in the world, and the highest in South Asia, and Bhutan is going into a debt crisis. This is headline article I, I usually observe, but this is not the case. And coming back to my point, and how to use the debt, and why and Bhutan borrowed money, and currently, about three quarters of 75% of debt is hydropower, mm. and which is fully financed by India. Mm. And because this is financed by India, and uh, India has been engaged in the construction of the hydropower construction, mm. and after being commissioned, 
India purchase export from Bhutan. Mm -hmm. So this is almost self-contained mm -hmm. and sustainable way. Mm -hmm. And I don't feel there are a lot of risk in terms of hydropower. Mm -hmm. And what we need to be concerned is the less non-hydropower debt. Mm. And which is about 25% um, of GDP. Mm. Mm. And if we look at the international figures, mm. this is on the low side mm. rather than high okay. side. Mm. But my follow-up message is, of course, the Buddha needs to be careful about mm. borrowing money. Mm. But too careful is not really good, mm. because there are a lot of financing needs. Mm. Be it social sector, health, health, education, infrastructure, there are a lot of financing needs. Mm. But just scaring away from debt, I don't want to borrow. Mm. and Bhutan will miss a lot of opportunities mm. and eventual result or consequence of not borrowing and not investing in infrastructure, physical or human infrastructure, mm. this would affect the long-term development process. Mm. Thank you. So uh, my uh, last two questions. One, we in our previous meeting already discussed about the similarities between Japan and Bhutan, culturally speaking, the affinity we share, the friendship we have. What a couple things that Japan have really done well that Bhutan can adopt and follow, economically speaking, or the sort of pitfalls, the mistakes Japan has made, which we should avoid. You want to share that? Yes. Of course, um, being Japanese, and I have a lot of observations about Japan, and uh, thinking about um, thinking about comparing Bhutan and Japan. Um, I, I feel there are a lot of commonalities, and not only me being a Japanese, but also as a global student, and so I see a lot of uh, commonalities between Japan and Bhutan. And whenever my friends and my family members come from Japan, and they find that, wow, Bhutan is Japan of 40, 50 years ago. Mm. Not only landscape, but also people and how you interact. And starting from what probably Japan can learn from Bhutan, and Bhutan has strong identity in a good sense, mm. and in which Japan has unfortunately lost. And some people may argue and may against my ideas, but in my sense, and Japan has been a so-called identity crisis for the last 20 years. And we used to have a strong culture back to 200, 300 years ago. And we are very strong in family ties and before, and until 50, 60 years ago. And after that, Japan went into the cycle of so-called economic development. At one stage, and in 1989 or 1990, the total value of Japanese land was four times higher than total US land. And we are at that stage, and really economic high in 1990s. At that time, and I remember that the people's idea and the identity shifted from family value into monetary value or economic value. Mm. And after that, we faced a financial crisis in 1990, uh, around 2000, mm. and we lost economic values, and we didn't keep and the family value into that. Mm. So I feel that Japan is, uh, has been in a crisis in terms of identity these days. Mm. And somehow, um, I explained that so Japan is very particular about the time. Mm. So even 20 seconds late, an early departure of the bill train. So it is a huge mm. um, media article. Mm. Mm. This is partly because, other than doing some outward looking and looking at Japan, outside Japan, mm. people tend to focus more and more. Mm. Because other than that, I don't, people don't know how to focus mm. things. Mm. And this is, I'm sorry, I'm a bit critical about Japan. So being <laughs> outside in Japan for last, 20 plus years, and the people tend to be very critical about my, uh, our own country. Mm. But looking back Japan, um, Bhutan, and Bhutan has strong identity in a good sense, and the mm. sense of unity. And this is where I feel that you need to keep, mm. and for the next two decades or three decades, 
The reason I'm saying is that I see a lot of dynamics happening in Bhutan, especially opening up country in 1999, and these couple of years, I see many difference, and in a good way or bad way, influenced by the rest of the world. And while being influenced and keeping identity is a big task, but this is what still Bhutan has an opportunity to do that. And uh, there are probably a couple of things that Bhutan can learn from Japan, probably Japan of um, 20, 30 years ago, um, because we put a lot of value on education, and which is very important. And when we say education, it's not only primary education or secondary education, but education in general. And from the beginning and uh, from the before primary education and after tertiary education, even after that, and we keep working and learning, and this is quite important, and which has created a good discipline in Japan. And part of the um, economic development in Japan, in terms of technology, of course, you know, major big Japanese companies such as Sony and others, and also there are many, many other small and medium enterprises and who are really focused on technology. And for example, when this uh, iPhone came um, back to 10 years ago, it was a Japanese very small company in the remote areas mm. and who has a special skills and how to um, make and the backside of the iPhone smooth. Mm. And this is one of the examples, and so this is embedded in our culture and tradition. Mm. And you have um, a lot of potential in Bhutan because sometimes I see from your um, culture setting and buildings and you pay a lot of attention to details. And uh, so you can go that way if you wish. And this is one thing that Bhutan can learn from Japan. Mm. Japanese sense of finesse and perfection. Um, now, not too much. <laughs> <laughs> not too much. Uh, we often ask this uh, question, or I do, as the last question before I open it uh, to the uh, audience. Do you have any habits, uh, traits, uh, things that you do almost daily, like watch a particular TV show or read a book or do meditation to keep you on top of everything, to keep you effective and sharp, uh, which our young people, friends here can either emulate or get inspired by? Um, I don't meditate. <laughs> I eat, of course, but I keep focusing on my uh, physical health and mental health. Mm. And I feel this is quite important. I regularly do exercise almost every day and going to gym or something, and which is important because in order to make a good performance out of me mm. and keeping mental health and physical health is quite important. Mm. And also, I'm, I'm still learning how to do that. And I'm trying to ask myself and trying to find myself. Mm. Still, I believe that there are a lot of rooms for me to grow, mm. but I still don't know how to get get at my best potential out of me. Mm. So it could be a meditation, but it could be other things. Mm. But I keep thinking about it and how best I can best perform. Thank you. Uh, now we'll ask uh, the audience to share their thoughts, if they have any questions. Young man. You mentioned the dead of Bhutan and saying it's more of a closed loop system. Can you briefly introduce yourself, sir? Yeah, so I'm Thomas Ramirez. I'm an international exchange student at RTC College. Mm. Uh, you you spoke about uh, the closed loop system being the dead Bhutan. How you see it as relatively, uh, you know, closed loop and not not involving many factors. So. Uh, potential to be, you know, contained and sustainable is great. 
maybe could you elaborate on that and maybe compare even to some uh, other nearby countries and how you see uh, the debt managing, uh, I guess the differences between the debt managing. Thank you. I, I'm trying to understand, and probably you may have referred to the hydropower debt. Yes. So this is like a closed system. Mm. And for example, so there are only two persons in the world, like you and me. <laughs> in that situation, I lend money to you, and you make a project, and I have a commitment to purchase your product out of you, and you can make a profit, and I have sort of guarantee that you provide some sort of product. So this is what we call closed group. But this doesn't necessarily mean there's, out, there's no risk out of that. And for example, you briefly touch on the climate change issue. And after Bhutan pays back all the debt and the hydropower, hydropower project is in operation, and if there's, a, for example, a gracious light outbreak or any climate change and there's no rain, and when the hydropower is not functional, it cannot generate any money. So this is potential risk, one potential risk we have. And of course, and we almost 100% rely on parts of India. And you touch on the other source of um, energy, such as solar. But I, I don't think this is a risk. I, I, I'd rather think this is the opportunity. But the other source and the demand from India is an uh, area that we need to think about it. So if I can touch on the, the relationship between Bhutan hydropower with the solar development in India. Because uh, originally, I had exactly the same concern. And when India become power surplus in the future because of the solar power project, mm. and they will not have to purchase hydropower from Bhutan. That, that was my worry. Mm. But this was not the case. The more I learned about the energy dynamics from my colleagues, it's different. Mm. Because solar power, especially at this stage, they are affected by weather. Mm. Whenever there is a sunshine, they can generate. Mm. But there is no sunshine, they cannot generate. And especially night time, and they have to purchase, and the Bhutan's hydropower can work as a natural battery and for India's uh, solar power industry. Of course, the down, line, down the line, when the technology is developed 30, 40 years ago, and when battery technology has changed, if there is some exchange of electricity across the world, this is a different dynamic. But at this stage, I don't worry too much about solar power development in India, especially impact on Bhutan's hydropower. So uh, my question, um, I have two questions, and they're from the lens of culture. So I too have worked in Rwanda. Uh, I did a study on women's rights to learn in Rwanda. <clears throat> and what I found really interesting was um, in government circles, people didn't want to acknowledge that culture existed. Because I was looking at customary rights to learn. Uh, and of course, that's post-genocide. You know, Culture was a very dangerous topic. So I was wondering if you, because you said you know there's a lot of similarities between Bhutan and Rwanda. So if you could maybe just say something about you know how do you see the way these two countries regard culture? You know, culture is in the four, one of the four pillars of GMH, right, front and center. And then secondly, I was wondering, the World Bank is of course known for having lots and lots of economists. So I was wondering what the World Bank can teach the world, the development world, about how to deal with culture. Is this a question for economists? <laughs> <laughs> well, we both studied at SOAS too, so that's another story. Uh, and of course, SOAS uh, is, you know, has a very critical perspective towards development and 
shift from state dominant of the economy into the private sector development. And these are common challenges, very unique challenges. And always my take is unless Bhutan and Rwanda or Bhutan or Rwanda be successful on this economic transformation, and no other country in the, in the world would be successful. So I, from that point, I see a lot of commonality. But in terms of culture aspect, and Rwanda and Bhutan are completely different. And speaking about Rwanda, of course, the major point was the genocide in 1994. And for those and the youth uh, who don't know about the background, and there was some the conflict between two ethnic groups, and we call it the Hutu and the Tutsi. And in reality, I don't know whether this division of ethnicity group is right or not. There are many, many articles about it. And some people say this is artificially created, and I, I don't know about it. But as a matter of fact, and it happened, unfortunately, and it affected the development path of the country. And in that sense, I thought it is right and to focus on development and something tangible result and creating a system to work together. And also the downside is, officially, we are not allowed to speak about two different ethnicity groups in our public document. We kept avoiding writing. There was a genocide, we can mention that. There is a Tsuchi and Fudu, we cannot mention it. Mm -hmm. But this is still embedded in their culture. Because sometimes we think 20 years and 25 years is long enough, but this is not the case. And in our office, and we have colleagues and who lost their parents, and she was hiding in a small box and looking at when they were killed. And we have that instance. Mm -hmm. And my helper in our house, and she still remembers the instance what happened. And once in a year, there is a memorial day and a commemoration day. And on that date, and most of the time, she goes sometimes outside and uh, crying. And we, we saw that still they are embedded in that. So this is a culture setting Rwanda has. So in that sense, and speaking of gender and something, they need to have a strong system. And sometimes um, Rwanda is treated as uh, the most gender unbiased country. And one number is the, the share of female politicians in the parliament is 60%. It's the highest in the world. And as far as I understand, the constitution requires minimum 30% and from, from female, but they go beyond that. Mm -hmm. But there are some cultural backgrounds about this, mm -hmm. because in, in Rwanda, female work and men usually don't work. Mm -hmm. Men go to a bar and drink beer, and female <laughs> bring money, and there are some cultural context. And we tend to focus on some good part of the development story, mm -hmm. but there are some cultural setting. But Bhutan, probably I'm not that knowledgeable how to compare Rwanda situation in Bhutan. But whenever I see culture setting and social issues, probably I need to be a little more mindful about the culture setting and where you come from. And this is where anthropologists can contribute more than I do. Um, second point, um, me being an economist, and I don't know how to contribute on the culture issue, honestly speaking. But the, the, I keep putting myself um, as a fungible resources and for development. So I keep repeating that I, I cannot be an expert on specific country. Mm -hmm. Because there are people who have been living here a long time 
I think mm -hmm. two decades more than that. And what I can do is to bring other countries' perspective and experience mm -hmm. into development context of a specific country and stimulate some conversation and ideas <coughs> under that context. And I strongly believe this is my role, not go beyond that. Does World Bank uh, actively uh, bring in cultural experts to inform you on development? Yes, and we have a specific unit on so-called social development and trying to um, take this cultural aspect and social aspect into account and in our project. Mm. And it's the same um, for how we treat environmental and social issues. Thank you. I observed that the countries uh, you worked in, other than Bhutan, were rising from or you know, responding to some crisis. You know, Afghanistan, Rwanda, Indonesia. There was some crisis of a sort, except for Bhutan. And <coughs> do you think uh, there is a difference uh, in the attitude of towards development as a result of a crisis compared uh, to not having one? Thank you. Um, it it can be a wake up call. Let, let, let me put it away. And I, I'm not, in any case, I'm not hoping for a crisis in Bhutan. <laughs> but when crisis happens, it can be used as a wake-up call. Mm. And just putting the context in Bhutan, mm. and in any case, and the Bhutan is one of the most successful countries. Mm. And looking at the growth rate over three decades, it's 7.6%. And this is the third highest in the world. The poverty rate declined from over 60% to less than 10%. This is a, the fastest reducing poverty rate in the world. And Bhutan has been successful. That's why it is difficult to change. Like, like a person myself, if I have been successful for the last 20 years or 30 years, even if other people say, Yoichiro, you have to change. You need to do this and that. This is a better way to pursue your life. Mm -hmm. I, I, I cannot be easily convinced because I am trapped by my own success story. And Bhutan could be the case, it's a mindset issue. And that's why we keep talking about the private sector development. And as far as I understand, we've been talking about the same issue for the last 10 years and 15 years. But I feel some mindset from the public sector point of view, they think still we need to lead the economy. We need to lead the private sector. From private sector point of view, let's wait until public sector can do for me something. I may be wrong, but somehow I sense that this is what we call the mindset. And linking it to the crisis situation, and when crisis happens, this could be a way to change. But the better way is to prepare before something happens. And you have a lot of opportunities and resources now, not only financial resources, and human resources, and you can change now. But we had uh, a minor crisis, you could say, economically speaking. We had the rupee crunch, which has uh, hindered our development process here. Do you think we have learned enough? Have we taken the measures uh, to avoid such a crisis in the future? Uh, I think it depends on the nature of the crisis and the how people are affected. Mm. Because the nature of the crisis uh, is a financial and the how to manage financing rather than overall uh, economic crisis. And still, during the crisis period, the growth rate was positive. It's a 2.1%, it's a positive growth rate. And I don't think people in general are affected in that way during the crisis. It's a matter of how to manage financial resources, and there was a reform after that, 200. So I, I, I don't think the, that kind of crisis affects the mindset. Um, hello, my name is That's funny because I always joke with my friends that in order for Bhutan to change, you need to give me a lot more. And, and then your comment about being trapped in your own success story, I think that's 
in my view, that's where Bhutan's mental health changed. Uh, but uh, you mentioned briefly uh, about how World Bank has been working in private sector development for the last 15 years. That was one of my questions I was going to ask you as to what's been the progress 15 years earlier and now, and what are your top three uh, priorities or success stories or things you're working on in terms of private sector development? My second question is more towards the hydropower. You mentioned about it's more of a power management or hydropower management, not necessarily the hydropower sector development itself is uh, bad needed, quote unquote. Um, in that sense, what if you can um, expand further on it in terms of hydropower management? Because at least from the very superficial observation I had in Bhutan, I think we don't, from the demand side, the consumer side, we don't have a very conscious um, management towards how we consume power. If you look at our construction, how our houses are very energy inefficient. If you look at the appliances we use, it's not necessarily very energy efficient. And it could be due to the, um, the subsidy we receive from the government, which makes the power relatively very cheap for a lot of us in Bhutan. Thank you very much. So let, let me first answer about the hydropower. Personally, I feel the benefit of the hydropower sector or energy generation in Bhutan. Still depends based on my own experience. I was in Rwanda and the food hydropower project uh, capacity is very low. And most of the day I had the electricity cut and more the, the, the highest number I had the 18 power cut a day. And this is how Bhutan managed, uh, sorry, the Rwanda managed the hydropower, sorry, the electricity. And in Bhutan, I haven't had a lot of problem about the electricity cut and it, it is mostly stable. And of course, people wouldn't feel that whenever everything comes, this is like air, and people treat it as usual. And also, and there are a lot of indirect impact. So the way hydropower really has been used is not only to generate hydropower or electricity. So money comes into the system with the government, and use money for social development, such as health and education. And in a good sense, and Bhutan is one of the unique, uh, unique countries in the world have the um, the free healthcare service and the education service. And without having a revenue from the hydropower, I don't think Bhutan has achieved that uh, social development. That's uh, indirect. And when I said about the, the hydropower management, the better hydropower management, it's not only about the hydropower sector per se, but also how to link hydropower sector with the rest of the economy. And we keep talking about job creation issues. And but there are a lot of, it's, it's not because of the lack of demand because the economy is growing very high. A lot of demand, and the private sector, they need more skilled labor, a lot of demand. But supply doesn't meet, doesn't meet their demand. So now, the total number of unemployed people in Bhutan is, say, 10,000. It's not big, it's, it's a small amount. And the hydropower and the road construction and the foreign number of foreign workers is a 50 or 52,000. And this means that uh, there is an opportunity in other sectors, but not utilized to address unemployment issue. And also focusing on the bigger issue, and for example, construction sector, and the hydropower construction sector, they don't really use a local construction company a lot. They import a lot of materials, via cement and rocks and others from yeah. outside. If they are generated locally, and there are some local generation, local production, so it will directly contribute to the economy. And I don't think this uh, synergies between hydropower and the rest of the economy is happening. And I'm sure this is the, the, the idea of the part of the government and the private sector, but we need to push further on that. And on private sector development, 
um, I, I, I see some progress in terms of environment, because the last 10, 15 years, there are many, many different processes going on. The invest, investment climate of Bhutan and is much better than the past. But whether it has really generated the result, and I have some observation and question mark, because Bhutan is not the only country in the world and who is promoting the private, uh, private sector development. And country like India, Indonesia, and other countries, they are focusing on private sector development. And especially inviting and attracting foreign uh, investors. So you are in competition. And you have natural and weakness, such as growth geography and connectivity. And unless the Bhutan address this connectivity and geography issue, it is not easy to invite. But in terms of direction, yes, on the right direction. In terms of result, not yet. This is how I describe it. Earlier you mentioned that um, the World Bank here in Bhutan also works in urban development. Um, so my question is, um, like when I think about urban development and infrastructure development, particularly in urban towns such as Juba and Kensington, like in the media, there's a lot of coverage about how like uh, people really want uh, like, like what we consider as temporary settlers, and these are usually people from a lower economic group and who tend to be um, settling on government-owned land. And these people get uprooted or you know, displaced. So how does the World Bank ensure that uh, in Bhutan particularly? Because I know the World Bank has very good safeguard policies and resettlement policies. So how do you ensure in the case of Bhutan that these are um, you know, really taken seriously by, for example, the respective uh, committees? Um, and then my other question is with regards to gender. Like I was just thinking about the um, gender policy note uh, for Bhutan that uh, the World Bank had supported in 2013. Um, and one of the recommendations uh, of that gender policy note was like to, uh, it, it recommended that, you know, to overcome some of the gender challenges that we currently face in Bhutan, um, there was a greater need to promote, you know, uh, the role of men as caregivers and also to have more like involvement of men in the household work. So um, <clears throat> what has the World Bank done like from 2013 till now to see this uh, being achieved? And also like, um, yeah, what are some of the challenges with regards to like overcoming these sort of uh, social norms with regards to achieving um, gender equality? Thank you very much. Uh, let me first touch on the urbanization issue. Because, uh, a few, when people speak about urbanization, so people tend to speak in a negative context because of the traffic jam and because of young kids not working and going around during the night time. And there are a lot of like, examples about the negative part of the urbanization. But put it, put it in, uh, in Bhutan's context, because Bhutan's land is not really small, but population is really small. And now the, what Bhutan is trying to achieve is the public service delivery across all the people, not only electricity, water supply, and others. Under that situation, so my starting point is how best to manage urbanization. Because the urbanization is not really bad. If people gather into the urban areas, the cost for providing public services, such as health, education, water, is getting less. And then they can use some money for other purposes. So it's not whether the urbanization is good or bad and how to manage urbanization. But uh, in order to manage urbanization, I don't think Buddha has made a lot of progress in talking about it because urbanization is naturally happening. People are simply coming from outside to, Bhutan, outside to the capital of Timpu. And it's randomly created some roads and some construction building, and which attract more people from outside. It's an unmanaged urbanization as far as I can see. 
and still there are a lot of chance for Kimpu and other uh, municipalities to manage urbanization. But unless you, know, you do that, and there will be some more traffic jam in the next couple of years, and it could be unmanageable. On the gender policy note, <coughs> and this is um, one of the areas that we need to be more engaged in that. Because we've been working on a little bit more hard topics such as infrastructure, such as policy reforms, and fiscal, and uh, this is uh, the private sector development. Sometimes we call it the dry topic, mm -hmm. and rather than gender. But uh, once again, thinking about the Bhutan situation and gender equality and how to promote gender, especially for empowering gender, is becoming more important. And looking at, and currently we are talking about um, youth unemployment rate, and which is really high. It's uh, about 13%. But if we look at um, Bhutan's demography in the next three decades or four decades, and Bhutan's population will be picked out in 2040 or 2050. So recently we get the population census and the population growth rate and birth rate is decreasing. And unless we utilize all human capitals in the long term, and Bhutan's growth rate is shrinking and there's no economic growth and in the future. And like my in-country Japan, and uh, we haven't used uh, the capacity of the woman and the power of the woman very well. I guess this is the same for Bhutan. And just referring back on um, Japanese situation, and we have a culture and tradition and may work outside, female stay inside. And we have traditional way of calling uh, wives, and which is kanai. Kan means uh, house, nai means inside. And the inside house, because traditionally women stay inside. That's why sometimes some husband introduce their wives kanai. So this is our tradition. And our policy supported in that direction. And for example, um, if women earn less than uh, 10,000 US dollars a year, this is exempted from tax. And the household doesn't have to pay tax. But this encourages um, women and from uh, working outside. Uh, we have a really bad system in Japan. This is not what you should learn from Japan. This, we have that <laughs> system. But coming back to Bhutan situation, still you have a lot of opportunity in the policy reform areas and encourage in making infrastructure such as nursery center and uh, daycare center for kids and trying to maximize use of the women's power. And unless you start, and it's not easy, but it takes a lot of time. Still, we haven't achieved a lot in Japan. Thank you very much. Thank you, Martin. Um, thank you for the mic. Um, touching on Dr. Kama's uh, comment on a recent article, uh, it's mentioned that hydropower plants could come and also, because there are a lot of questions on hydropower, I was thinking it would be useful for the audience here if uh, I'm sure you could share your personal view or the bank's view on economic diversification. Thank you very much. Um, do you know what economic diversification is? Not them do, I think. Okay, okay, that's good. Um, there are a lot of discussion and argument about economic diversification in Bhutan. So as a part of the discussion for private sector development, the idea is, it's, maybe it's coming from the old portfolio theory. Don't put all, all apples into the same basket. If one apple goes wrong, everything goes wrong. So that's why it's important to put apples and oranges in a different basket. Then we can make risk hedge for the economy. And this is coming from that. But one thing that the people misunderstand and I misunderstood about the economic diversification is, it's not a result, it's a means. And why do you want to do, why do you want to diversify the economy? What's the end result of economic diversification? 
and without having the result in their mind, it is not useful. And actually, it is easy to diversify the economy because how we can measure economic diversification is a share of each sector in the economy. So if 10 sectors is equally divided, this is per perfectly diversified in the economy. But is this what you want to have? I think it's different. The way we need to handle the economic diversification is by diversifying the economy, what kind of results we want to have. In Bhutan's context, diversification means private sector development. By thinking, for example, hydropower sector with the rest of the economy, is a construction, be the service sector, so other sectors have an opportunity to grow. And as a result, we have diversified the economy, and which would absorb more laborers into the economy and in the private sector. But we have many examples across the world about economic diversification. This is not a new term, especially in Middle Eastern countries and which are producing oils and gas. They keep talking about diversification the last three, four decades. And most of the, the most of the case, they are not very successful. It's part of the reason is still state conduct diversification. Okay, let's create airline company. Let's create company A, B, and C, then we can diversify and we can have a better economy. And this hasn't happened that way. There may be some successful case, but in general, there are many, many failures case. And, and the World Bank, we are trying to gather some thought on economic diversification. And there is one flagship report called um, Diversified Economy, and which is experienced from um, East uh, European countries. And we identified the three uh, foundations for economic diversification. And one is the human capitals, the capacity of people, health and education. Unless we have a good number of capable people, we cannot diversify the economy. The second is uh, physical infrastructure. In case of Bhutan, road network, ICT network, these are foundations. And last, uh, just yesterday, I looked at the Bhutan ranking on what we call the logistics performance index. And among 160 countries, Bhutan is 144 in the world. It's lower than <coughs> Nepal, no one lower than India. I am not surprised because of the geography and others, Bhutan has a lot of challenges. But the investment hasn't happened so that infrastructure contributes to private sector development. And the last part is uh, institutional development and how to formulate a policy and the institutional framework for diversification. In all areas, still there is room for improvement, and this is where we are working with the government. Thank you very much. I've uh, learned a lot. I have many burning questions, but I've already run over the time by 10 minutes. Um, I have my last question for you, which we, as a ritual, ask all the guests. We often ask you what your favorite book is that you read, you read, and you would like the audience to also read, and then we offer you a couple of books as a token of gratitude for coming here. What are the titles you chose and why? Okay, um, I picked up two books, and uh, can I yes. So one the, from the hard part of me, this is economic development. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know, I know you're disappointed about it. <laughs> but I, I started my career as a non-economist. I didn't have any clue how I can develop my capacity and what kind of book I did. And whenever I faced that problem, I went to the bookshop. And my days, it's like an actual book like this, not, not e-book. And I was looking, there are many, many formulas, and I'm not a mathematician, and I couldn't handle that. And one of the books I face is, uh, this is Economic Development by uh, Michael Todaro. 
And this is, I'm sorry, this is the 12th edition, and mm -hmm. I was reading maybe second or third edition. Mm -hmm. But this is really good because uh, this um, treats development from an economic, economic point of view in a comprehensive way and without using numbers and mathematics. Mm -hmm. So this is everyone's book, mm -hmm. and if, I don't think you are interested in that, but if you are interested in that, this is one of the books, mm -hmm. and I, I highly recommend. Mm -hmm. And another book, um, Yes, because Jerry was talking about Momo session. So I'd like to put this is Momo. Have you heard of this book? This is child book for children. This is an old book and written by, I don't know, in 1940s or 1970s. This is a really old book and written by Michael Ende. This is a very famous book. And the main concept of this book is time. So there is a small girl. Small girl and who are trying to kind of really save the world or cities and about the time. Because when people become really hardy and to be effective and efficient, people lose and lost a lot of sense about how important to communicate with other people. And that small girl saved a city and from this crisis. So throughout my career and my life, I keep thinking about time. This is a very, very interesting topic and philosophy. So that's why I picked up this subject. No, thank you very much. Um, that brings us to the end of our 10th Bhutan Dialogue session. Um, I normally end the session by giving a quotation from traditional Bhutanese Buddhist heritage. And today I came with a verse from Shantideva's Bodhicharya Avatara. But then Jerry already cited that at the beginning of this session. <laughs> we didn't <laughs> talk about it, but great minds think alike, I suppose. <laughs> um, nonetheless, because it's such a powerful verse, I will repeat it. First in Chuge, Gesenam gi milapa, tini kayam yuminte, tetarnebi kebala, sonam mijur kayame. And my rough translation there's nothing a bodhisattva will not learn. For there is nothing the wise one cannot turn into an act of merit. So, with that, thank you all for coming. And thank you very much, uh, Yushiro, for joining us. Let's give Yushiro a round of applause.